Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are congressional challenger to Lauren Boebert, Adam Frisch, and political science journalist and host of the Good Fight podcast, Yasha Monk. And we have a lot to talk about about the Congress. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicsroarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet at Politicon for next week's show. Now, we're going to get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our recent sponsors in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. James, I watched that House of Representatives uh, gong show uh, yesterday, and it really was it was it was really. Uh, uh, terrible. You know, my old colleague who you knew very well, the late James Perry, wrote a book on the 10 worst generals of all times. If Kevin McCarthy donned a uniform, <clears throat> he'd be on that list. Uh, this was, I did a piece this morning called, it was the inmates running the asylum. And we ought to forget, and we should not forget rather, it wasn't just those eight crazies who offered that motion. It's reflective of the House caucus. As, as Carl Hulse, the dean of congressional uh, writers wrote, they simply cannot govern. Whoever succeeds McCarthy is going to have you know, maybe a brief honeymoon, but the same problem you had, a loud chorus, a uh, large chorus actually of extremists who want to tear down everything in sight, impeach everyone, hell, they'd impeach the White House German shepherds uh, if they had a chance. And, and when you get to Congress, having covered it for many years, some things haven't changed. The sine qua non of a congressional leader is your word is your bond. I mean, if you, I remember one time Tip O'Neill talking to him and he, he probably made a wrong decision. He said, I can't change because I, I, I made a commitment. McCarthy's word was transactional and that catches up to you. Um, you know, Lisa Desjardins, the great uh, news hour congressional correspondent, said some of this was personal. They really knew he was a guy who could not be trusted. And the Republican defense, boy, but look what a tough job he had. He had to govern with that small majority of only five or six. Hell, Nancy Pelosi had the same size majority and she governed and passed bills one after another. That's because she was more skillful and tougher uh, than McCarthy or any of those other wannabes. Uh, the Republican, the Democratic crazies, and there are some, they're fewer in numbers and they're less crazy uh, than the Republicans. And I must say that in 48 hours um, since McCarthy was deposed, I don't know things have got, if anything, have gotten worse. Patrick McHenry, who was the acting speaker, I've never, I've never used that term before, the acting speaker. That's because no one else has ever used that term because there's never been one. The first thing he did was to expel Nancy Pelosi from her Capitol hideaway. She's out at Dianne Feinstein's funeral. Now, you know, eventually she had to move, I suppose. But the message may be, I'm a little guy in a bow tie, but I'm tough. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you, I'll, I'll, I'll be tough on those damn Democrats. Well, instead it was cheap and the Democrats aren't going to let him forget that, James. Well, I have a little bit of a different take on this. I, I think that Trump was at the center of this. Well, of course and he was. I, I mean, he's at the, I he's at the center of everything. Uh, right. I, I, but what, what he was trying to accomplish, he, he accomplished and that's chaos. And so you're right, it's 100% Republicans' fault. You can't blame the Democrats, not one iota, the most, but on the other hand, fair, balanced journalists that live. I, uh, 
Ron Fournier himself couldn't figure a way that the Democrats were part of this, whatever. However, however, I, I worry that this chaos strategy might work better than we, we think. And of course, people are going to look at the House, and what I'm afraid, that 20% of the people in the country are going to say, God damn, it just shows how screwed up the whole operation is. And we get culpability for something that we deserve zero culpability, but people just, Trump feels like anything that has chaos and disorder will inure to his benefit, as if he was an order guy. But that, 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 that's the, what, what lingeringly worries me. And I guarantee you Trump was encouraging and agitating for this. And boy, I'm going to tell you, the blood, you know, one of the things people don't realize about Kevin McCarthy, he's, his word is no good. He's everybody's favorite punching bag. Right? He's been disgraced. However, Kevin McCarthy has friends in the Congress. Kevin McCarthy has people who like him. Kevin McCarthy has people who go to dinner with him, all right, who I don't play cards with him. And they're not happy. And it's more than two or three. It's more than two or three that think that he was really massively mistreated here. And I you know, everybody seems to agree his word was no good, that the Democrats didn't believe anything he said, the Republicans thought he did. Well, all that may be true, but they are substantial number of people in a Republican caucus that are highly pissed off right now because they're friends of Kevin McCarthy. And I, I, I promise you that's Well, of true. course it is true. I mean, you know, he got, uh, you know, 200, 200 votes, but uh, it, it goes to a much larger issue. It's not just a, that small group that caused that problem yesterday. Matt Gatz is, uh, I mean, he's, he, he is a deplorable. Uh, he's been accused of all kinds of terrible things, and he's actually just looking for, let's see, but it's that larger house. It's that larger group. And, uh, yeah, some of them, you know, like McCarthy, and there's going to be a lot of bloodletting that goes on. But it comes down to Carl Hulse's point. They can't govern because I, I assure you that bloodletting is not going to be 90-10. It's going to be all kinds of different issues. A lot of them were the ones that allowed that silly rule about vacating the chair to take effect uh, last January. And then, you, you know, you have Newt Gingrich. God, I, you know, he never goes away. Uh, he is bragging today about his speakership, forgetting to point out that he was the only speaker to ever be reprimanded and fined. He said Matt Gass should be expelled. Now, I think the Florida congressman is just a first-class jerk, a deplorable, really, in every sense. But w w what are you going to expel him for? I mean, what what is his expulsion going to be about? The fact that he he, he led a revolt against... Uh, uh, against Kevin McCarthy? No, uh, it won't be. On the other side, I think Hakeem Jeffries was masterful. He kept his caucus together. There were a few, I'm told, that were tempted for the sake of the House uh, to vote present. Uh, and I think he very wisely said, hey, you can't trust these people. They've broken their word time and time again. Let's just, uh, you know, do what we're going to do and then and watch them play it out. You may be right. I'm, I'm less worried about it uh, redounding to Republicans' advantage. Yeah, I, I can't tell you that it, it's crossed my mind that, that people just see across the board justifiably, prob probably not. They look at the border, the crime, although it's going down, it's since that it's, a, it's out of control, uh, you know, interest rates, you name it, gas prices, um, it just, 
I'm just afraid this is another twig on a roaring fire. But I, I just throw that up as a caution flag. Well, that's a that's a worthy caution flag, and uh, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to watch. You know, all kinds of stories about who is going to succeed. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Steve Scalise, or Tom Emmer, who says he's not interested, or they end up keeping McKenna. It doesn't much matter. It really doesn't much matter. They have to deal with the same group of clowns uh, that McCarthy had to deal with. And, yeah, maybe they're in some ways will, will um, uh, you know, be more forthright. But it's very unlikely they're going to get any Democratic help. And in the end, I don't see how they're going to pass much without Democratic help. Patrick McHenry, he, he may be the acting speaker on January the 1st, 2025. He may be. He may be. That's right. He may be. I mean, it may, it, 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 that that might be the best they can do. Yeah. We just get got because I will tell you the the bitterness within the Louisiana delegation is is manifest, and that, I'm sure that would expand to the the to say that Gary Graves and Steve Scalise are, are, are not chummy pals is to state the obvious. Well, th- there weren't any Louisianans who voted. Um, who voted to vacate the chair yesterday? Were there? I don't no, think. I don't. I mean, the the the, the, the weird vote was Nancy Mace from South Carolina. Uh, well, there were two weird votes. Uh, she was one weird vote because she said McCarthy broke his word on um, on 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 women's issues. Well, if it was McCarthy breaking his word, there would have been about you know a hundred Republicans voting against him. And the other, what's his name, the congressman from Tennessee, who somehow thought. Oh, Burke, Burke, Burchett. Burchett thought that McCarthy had, had offended his faith and said, God right. tells me how to vote. And I guess God told him right. to vote against McCarthy. God, God speak to, God talks to a lot of people in Tennessee. I got to tell you, man, he, he's, he's really on the horn with people from Tennessee a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, we know he, he told us where God came down um, yesterday. Right. But I just want to reiterate, I think Hakeem Jeffries has the potential to be a really, really great speaker someday. And if he is, it's going to be he was advantaged by being in the minority for the first couple of years because he's getting uh, a lay of the land of his, of his caucus. He's got Pelosi to help if necessary. And so far, you know, I think every move he's made has been a correct one. Yeah, uh, he hadn't had to he hadn't had to make a lot, but the ones he made pretty. Well, false. he had to make the one on uh, keeping the government open. That was, and he had to make the one right. yesterday about keeping well, yeah, keeping his caucus I mean, totally was, uh, right. in line. Which, it, it, yeah. I, I, I agree, it hadn't been great, but yeah, I, agree. I, I think he's doing a great job, and the, the members really like yeah. him. I mean, you can you can see that. Okay, this will be a story that will not go away. We will have a lot uh, in ensuing weeks. Nancy Mace is the one. I don't. She is crazy as Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Bobert, but she dresses better. Boy, that'll that'll get you. Well, she also had a better bio. She was the first what first woman graduate of the Citadel. Uh, She ran as kind of a you know not a right wing Republican, uh, but uh, she beat uh, Congressman Cunningham. I, I don't know. I was surprised by her vote yesterday. Uh, and I've right. been even more surprised in watching her try to explain it. But, you know, right. they're all, all... But at least she wears nice clothes. Well, okay. We'll, we'll give her that. Go ahead.
You know, James, we have never had a House challenger on this program, but there rarely has been a challenger like Adam Frisch, a Democrat from Aspen, Colorado, who two years ago in a heavily Republican district stunned the political world by coming within 546 votes of defeating right-wing bomb thrower Lauren Boebert. Uh, and Aspen this summer, I met Mr. Fish's wife. He was out campaign who told me we better get him on this show. So I wanted to make sure she she intimidated me a little bit, Adam. But thank you for joining us. In 2022, you almost pulled off a shocker. But this time, Republicans say they're ready for you. And groups like the Club for Growth, a really nasty, unprincipled bunch, plans to <clears throat> spend a bundle viciously attacking you. What are you expecting and how are you going to handle it? Hey, great to be here, guys. Really a big honor. Uh, and yes, Katie's not the, you're not the first person that uh, Katie, my wife, has intimidated, but uh, she's on the ball and we all have strong uh, spouses. Uh, and that's one of the reasons we've all been able to be fairly successful in what we've been doing. So let me just get to the point. Uh, people asked me last time, you know, when 538 and the Democrats and the Republicans are telling everyone you're going to lose by 45,000 votes, it's hard to generate media, it's hard to generate that money. But I just knew in my gut two years ago when Representative Bobart made some comments, don't ask me what they were, they were very on brand, so to speak. There might be a lot of crazy people in the world. There aren't that many crazy people in the world. And I thought if a moderate Democrat could get by the primary, I could build a coalition. My mom calls it the pro-normal party coalition. And we needed about 10% of her prior voters and we came very, very close to doing that. Unlike last time, um, where we had nine months of when I launched my primary challenge in the Democratic Party and had to get on the ballot, had to win that by a little bit, and then challenge. This year, we have a whole year ahead of us. And unlike last time, we probably will not run out of money. We could have used two more weeks last time with no more money just to continue to drive around in the red pickup truck or another quarter million dollars or something, because that's how much we were outspent by on media the last couple of weeks of the campaign when they finally started to take us seriously. Unlike last time, we didn't want it to be a surprise. It was a surprise and we'll be ready. Uh, we're generating a good amount of money. We have some really strong third quarter fundraising numbers that we'll, we will release to the public next week. But through the end of the second quarter, we raised over four and a half million and the representative has raised like one five or one six. And so while money is not everything, and I wish there wasn't as much needed in politics, it is a good indicator of the strength that we've built. We have a poll showing us up a couple points, and that was before the whole Beetlejuice conversation, which you can talk about or not. Yeah, we'll get back to Beetlejuice, but Bo I, I noticed that Politico reported Boebert is trying to tamp down her crazy stuff at home, uh, saying she even works with John Hickenlooper uh, and talking about the bacon she has brought home. Is this a, is this a new Boebert? You know... I, I don't think anyone's seen a new no Bobart. You've you've kind of seen what, how she's was all for shutting down the government uh, even a, a week ago as well. And I don't know why uh, someone would publicly talk about being two faced uh, to a national press. She's been running around in that political article arguing that she's basically going to be a mega loudmouth when she's in D.C. But when she comes back to the district, she wants to be a different person. And to me, um, I think she's very consistent and she's incredibly ineffectual in D.C. and she's incredibly ineffectual uh, in her district. And so I don't know why, again, one would admit that they want to be two different people. Um, 
I'm my own person. Um, a lot of hard things about running in our district, Al, that is larger than the state of Pennsylvania and has a registration of Democrats of 23%. But the reason we've been able to do so well is that I'm authentic and sincere, and I worked my butt off driving around 25,000 miles in the pickup truck last cycle, and we've added another 10 or 12,000 miles already. Same pickup truck? Same, yeah, Ford F-150, it's red, of course. And uh, my son took his junior year of high school off. Um, he did his online in a couple months, and we had a 25,000-mile father-son road trip through what I would argue, uh, undisputably, the most beautiful district in, in the country. Let, we me, have. let me try one more and then turn it over to James. Last time you ran, there was a popular governor and senator on the top of the ticket. Next year, in all likelihood, Joe Biden is going to be in the top, top of the ticket. How much of a drag will that be for you? Well, the polling that we had done a couple weeks ago, it was our own polling that we paid for, but Chris Keating uh, in our district was spot on last time. We started off down seven points. We ended up down two points at the end of uh, October, and we were obviously statistically tied on election night, having the closest race in the country. I make it very clear, uh, Al, that I am, I don't, as I tell people when I'm in the Chamber of Commerce, is, I don't care who people voted for in 2016. I don't care who they voted for in 2020. All I ask them to think about them and their family and their community, but who they want representing them in the House of Representatives when we're having conversations about water and rural broadband and rural healthcare access. Uh, the polling has us up two points and it has Trump up five points. And it might be hard to believe, but there's going to be a bunch of Trump fresh voters next year when we win. James. So, uh, Congressman, let's talk a little bit about your district here. And uh, it, it, tell us, about, you know, it's very rural. Uh, you're yeah. from Aspen. I, I don't think that's a plus, but that's just where you're from. And we can't do anything about that. Uh, but, but do you find the national image of the Democratic Party is pretty crappy in rural America? And is that something that you have to deal with in your campaign on a regular basis? It's it's more than pretty crappy, uh, Jim. I, I can vouch for that. Okay. First of all, I'm from Montana. I was born on the Indian Reservation. I have lived in Aspen for the past 20 years and proudly so. But without a doubt, in a district that, again, is half the state geography, larger than the state of Pennsylvania, uh, leans about seven or eight points Republican and has a registration of Democrats of about 22 or 23 percent, I certainly was very aware when I went into this race that I'm going to have to get over um, to convince a bunch of people that I don't have blue horns as well as that I don't have mountain horns. And yes, being from As living in Aspen, Colorado for 20 years is certainly a, a negative that I had to get over in the Democratic primary as well as in the general election. But we did a pretty darn good job of that, I would have to say, driving around and, and being a good listener. Um, you know, the statistic I talk about all the time, um, and, you know, going back to uh, your Clinton days, uh, Bill Clinton, President Clinton won 50% of the rural counties in the country. And there's about 3,000 counties in the country, and 2,000 of them are deemed rural by the Department of Agriculture on density. And pretty much all of our 27 counties are. Bill Clinton won half of these rural counties. Uh, Barack Obama in 2012 won 25% of the rural counties. Uh, and Joe Biden, with due respect, won fewer than 10% of the rural counties in the country. And my conversation to a lot of people is that, um, you know, you need the Democratic Party to be more than 20 big cities, Aspen, Boulder, and Martha's Vineyard. 
because that's pretty much where the Democratic Party is right now. And I'm laser focused uh, on defeating Lauren Boebert. But there is a conversation to be made about how Democrats need to do a hell of a lot better uh, outside these 20 big cities. Uh, right. And uh, if, hopefully uh, uh, when you win, we can discuss this some more. you, you got a great ca- campaign manager mm-hmm. dating Shelby Donick, who's my good friend who's running the Senate Testis campaign. And I've, been, yeah. I've met him in Kansas. And I, I'm going to be out in Aspen for an event. And I'll text him and if you want to do a little meet and greet with some donors or something like that, yeah. maybe we can hook uh, something up. But but I, 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 I want to go back to this this problem that the party has in in rural and small town America, it, because people like you and I, but we're like the canaries in the coal mine. I mean, we hear it and we get it, and much of it, I think, is self-inflicted. Yeah. All right. I, I, I mean, our, Governor Romo was a good friend of mine, and he that was a postmaster in Eastern Colorado, and you know he grew up to be very successful, but never really forgot his roots and one of the most inspirational people I ever met in politics. But what, how much, what percent of the rural vote did you get in 2022 uh, when you take out Aspen and some some other, was Grand Junction a metropolitan area in your district? yeah, so we, we have Aspen and, and Telluride and Crested Butte, two, you know, three uh, resort communities. You right. know, we probably won 85% of those votes, but those votes are 2 or 3%. Right, um, right. Pueblo and Grand Junction both have 100,000 people in them. They're uh, unfortunately five hours apart, and I have to go back and forth between them all the time. <laughs> right. Luckily, it's a beautiful district to drive across. You know, we Mesa County is where Grand Junction is. We did not win Mesa County, but we outperformed Biden by about eight points there, and we won every precinct in Grand Junction. We won Pueblo, uh, the county Pueblo, 53% for the first time in a long time. Uh, We won Alamosa County, uh, which is where I am right now. That's the San Luis Valley. Um, Very poor ranching, farming, classic conversation. Just met with the Potato Farmers Association growers here in Colorado. And one of the reasons we're doing so well is we're just on the road all the time. I'm in my pickup truck 21 days a month, pretty much. I'm only back home uh, a couple days a month. And this is how we knew from day one it was going to require a lot of hustling and a lot of listening, a lot of learning and a lot of confirmations about just the branding that's out there. And if I get into a team red versus team blue conversation, I'm losing by I'm losing by seven or eight points. I'm very, very focused on hey, 80% of us are on Team Colorado, 20% are on Team Chaos, and I'm on Team Colorado, and that's what I'm focused on. So when you talk to people on Team Chaos, are some of them kind of embarrassed by her? Say, yeah, I've I've never voted for a Democrat, and I don't know if I will this time, but gee whiz, that woman doesn't reflect well on our state, our community. Do Do you hear any of that kind of noise? Jim, that that was that was focus number one when I started this race on my assumptions, and it got confirmed when we got forty nine point nine percent of the vote. I think a couple things. One, I think about a third of the Republican Party wants their party back, and they're very very frustrated. And my idea was I needed to get a third of that third, and I could end up building this coalition to winning. And that's why we focus on the Chamber of Commerce and other civic and business leaders to do that. Um, Two themes we ran on from day one, and it, it still goes on to this day. People want the circus to stop. 
Um, my buddy Dean Phillips, uh, who I grew up with, talked about this angertainment industry. Uh, and obviously, you see it to this day in Matt Gates and Jim Jordan and obviously Representative Bobart as well. So, and the other thing is people want someone to focus on their job and and not themselves. And our ranchers and farmers and small business communities, they're very pragmatic. You cannot be a successful rancher or farmer if you're unpragmatic. You just can't defy the odds of mother nature and hard work. And Representative Bobart, no matter what you say, is very unpragmatic. And so I just met today with a lot of different people. They're very, very frustrated that she's very, very focused on herself and chasing ghosts and goblins committees and not really working on focusing on the jobs at hand, which is we have sincere water issues out here. I'm not making anyone, I'm not saying anyone is anti-water. I am saying, who do you want sitting down at that table when there could be eight of us from Colorado delegation sitting across from 52 people from California? Do you want her in that chair or do you want me in that chair representing you and your community and your family and your business? Uh, okay. Uh, thank you, man. It's a, it, I, I think you're going to do this. I really do. <laughs> I, I don't know why. No, I'm, I'm, before I let you go, I'll give one piece of yeah, advice. Yeah, we, we got more to go, James. Okay, I know, but, but just before I forget, in your district, you have colleges and you probably got two-year colleges, anything like that. Emphasize these areas, even though it's not, you don't have Boulder or Fort Collins in your district, any any setting, post-high school setting is just going to be more democratic than, than normal. And you, you have to exploit it to the extent you can, particularly when you're down to like 500 votes. Yeah. We have uh, 12 or 13 higher education institutions, everything from Pueblo Community College uh, to Adams State uh, in Alamosa, where uh, I'm going to go visit some people in a little bit, to the Colorado State University Pueblo. You know, we think if we can get those people registered, um, the, those young kids and students, it's a 70 to 75 percent conversation. Uh, we also know there's a lot of kids that grow up in the district that are going to school down in Denver and in Boulder and Fort Collins and in Pueblo, and we're going to focus on them. Um, it's a huge register. We're spending a lot of time focused on registration that in the Latino population, it's about 25% Latino, 45% Latino in Pueblo. They're, both the Latinos and the younger people are voting at a higher level than they have in the past. But it's really important to make sure that everyone gets registered and voting. Colorado has some of the best and safest insecure election laws in the country. Uh, and we have 100% mail-in ballot. Uh, and us in my home state of Minnesota uh, kind of battle every year for the highest voter participation. But we're on it for sure. Uh, you mentioned, Adam, earlier the so-called Beetlejuice, where um, <clears throat> your opponent was at a Denver um, theater, movie theater, and there was a raucous disruption, even apparently involving some sex. How is that playing in the 3rd District? You know, there's a lot of foibles that come up in the press about the representative. We main focused on she's, you know, part of the angertainment circus stuff and she's not focused on the job. My comment I've made is just it's another notch in the embarrassment belt uh, of the district. And without a doubt, some of the prior antics from Bobert when she's in D.C., you can kind of see where 10, 20, 30 percent of the people really like that conversation. There's not a single person uh, in this district. This is not a liberal, moderate, independent, conservative conversation. This is just how does one act uh, in public as a person, as an adult, let alone as an elected representative. So um, we haven't 
made any comment written about it, tried to fundraising off of it. it. It generated a bunch of money for us, but it wasn't because of us sending out letters. It's unbelievable the amount of national and international press the story has gotten, but it just goes to show um, people are sick and tired of the embarrassment of a current representative, and they just want to change. Well, as sad as it was for the Republic, uh, <clears throat> Tuesday must have been a, uh, I don't want to say a good day for you, but a bad day for her. I mean, the Republicans look like a party that was not only uh, in chaos, but couldn't govern. Uh, and that that has to hurt her a little bit, I would think, Adam. Yeah, you know, we're very, very focused on our district. And I, I make it very clear that I want to join this Problem Solvers Caucus. There's 30 Dems and 30 Republicans in there. And I will be one of the most conservative Democrats, uh, you know, looking at Jared Golden, Maria Guzman-Camperez, and Mary Patola. <coughs> Those three uh, seem to align a lot with what where our district is. And I'm focused on the district, um, and we have the support from a wide variety of people about doing that. And it just goes to show, I don't know what's going on. I mean, every day that um, the House is in disarray, we're not passing a farm bill, which is about to, which has just expired. We're not working on the rural aspects of health care. Republicans and Democrats both get sick. Uh, we're not focused on this water shortage that is causing a lot of harm for our conservationists and the ranchers and farmers in our district as well. And, you know, again, I'm trying to get on these committees that are focused on a district and not getting involved in oversight committees that just really don't go anywhere. We have a lot of serious issues in Colorado, especially in the Western Slope and in Southern Colorado, where I am now. And that's what I want to focus on. And all this other stuff is just shenanigans of shenanigans. No wonder why uh, the House of Representatives or all of Congress have such low credibility ratings. It's just because there's not enough people focused on the job. I do believe... There are a lot of good Republicans and Democrats that are trying to focus on the job, but they're in these subcommittee meetings. They're not on Twitter, and they're not on television yelling and screaming. And those are the groups of people I want to work with to pass legislation to help out the district. It's as simple as that, Al. So uh, this is, a, I think, is a no one realized a, a big issue in American politics is water. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, I, if you live in Louisiana, we haven't going to have saltwater intrusion because the river's yeah, so low because we got no rain. We got saltwater intrusion going to come and screw the drinking supply up in New Orleans. Water's got to be a big issue in Western Colorado, doesn't it? I mean, it, that's something you're really going to have to work on if you when you get to, to yeah Washington. It, 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 yeah, water is is the number one, number two, number three issue out here. Uh, 40 million people in the United States, California, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, Wyoming, Utah, are, are in, and a good chunk of Denver as well, is fed by the water that falls in, in the western slope in the mountains that we're all in. And it's no matter what you're saying, it's hotter and drier no matter what goes on. And the ranchers and farmers are feeding not just their families, they're feeding everyone across the country. We have conservation needs. We have um, recreation needs as well. And again, I'm not arguing anyone's anti-water. I just, again, I'm when I get in front of these uh, meetings, I'm just like, who do you want sitting in that water chair representing you, uh, her or me? And that resonates with a lot of people. And water is really, really important. You know, I grew up uh, in Montana where it was really dry and also Minnesota where the Mississippi would flood, you know, we just need to, we, I wish we could just kind of tilt the country a little bit and try to figure out how to get more equilibrium of water. But in the meantime, we have a crisis in our hands in Colorado and it's a competency conversation. It's not a left or right conversation. Right. Well, I'm glad I identified the top three issues in your district. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You're, you're spot on, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> so 
it, it, it seems like the statewide elected Democrats, but the governor, the two senators, and you know the congressional delegation all seems to be pretty, pretty, pretty good, and would not be would be if anything a slight help in that Western Colorado district, Walty. I mean, trying to identify you as a Washington Democrat is a. I, I, I think the state people that represent the state are, are very thoughtful people for, on the most part. Yeah, you know, they are. I mean, our state legislature has gotten a little, uh, has gotten very left. Oh, hell it's a concern. And it's, you know, it's, we have this rural-urban divide, and I know people talk about it across the country, but you really feel it out here. Um, and there's just some issues that are coming out that are just not friendly. And just a lot of people, the ranchers and farmers, and a lot of people in rural America just kind of feel like there's people making decisions and they just have no idea or understanding of what life is like on a daily basis. And you, you see it and feel it all the time. And some of it's policies and some of it's how we're being talked to out here. And the biggest surprise I learned, you know, we have 64 counties in Colorado. Yeah, are in the metro area. Right. Uh, and the, the, everyone else in these other areas just feel like there's this great state of Denver going on and they just don't feel heard and listened to. And that's you hear that from Democrats, independents, and Republicans. Well, I'll be in Boulder next week and I'll tell them, just stand down between the election. You're really not helping anybody. <laughs> I don't know how to write the news to you, but... <laughs> no, yeah, just I, I'm just very, very focused... Uh, on Team Colorado and Team CD3 and what's important to Western and, and Southern Colorado and letting people know that I'm a, I'm a big believer that we need to have a strong domestic energy uh, industry in Colorado uh, and in the country. It's not good when we're begging Saudi Arabia for help to turn on the spigot when we're shutting things down here. Um, obviously, there's a climate crisis going on. Uh, the ranchers and farmers and the Republicans understand that as well. We just need to have a better understanding of how to talk to people uh, especially, you know, the people that are producing very clean uh, natural gas out here are being told to shut it down by people in Denver and, and D.C. that probably use five times as much energy per capita than the men and the women digging it out of the ground out in Colorado. Uh, and as long as we're begging Saudi Arabia and Venezuela for help, we need to have one domestic energy policy. When we're, when we're done begging bad countries for help, we can have another conversation. Adam Frisch, you have set a precedent. Uh, if we can find any more interesting challengers, we're going to have them on. I want to tell you, your part-time Aspen resident, Juliana Goldman, said hi. She's a huge fan, and yeah. we're delighted you're on. And uh, maybe next time we'll have you on as Congressman Frisch. I hope so. Go to adamforcolorado.com to help us volunteer or send in a couple of dollars for us. But we're on our path. We're doing super well. And I remain one of your biggest fans to Alan James. So thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, James, our guest is Yasha Monk, a brilliant 41-year-old Johns Hopkins political scientist who has just published his fifth book, The Identity Trap. Professor Monk, unlike right-wing critics of identity or so-called woke politics like, I guess, Christopher Rufo or Ron DeSantis, you're a progressive and you've written about the threat of authoritarianism and you're a Trump critic. 
but you've warned of the dangers of focusing on identity, race, uh, ethnicity, sexuality, gender as a defining measure, which is primarily a problem with the left. Tell us why. So yeah, so as you're saying, I've been, you know, made my name and my career by warning about right-wing populism, and I remain very concerned about it. But over the last 10 years, I've also been struck by how deeply the ideas of many of my friends and colleagues have transformed, how the left has gone from a set of more universalist aspirations of a kind of country that we should build to a vision in which how we treat each other and how the state treats all of us will always be dependent on the particular kind of groups into which we're born. Now, I understand the appeal of those ideas. I think there's a genuine lure here. These theorists and the activists inspired by them have claimed that uh, they are the most consistent and radical force to fight against injustices that are very real and make a better society. But I think that they have fallen into a trap, a trap that's made it harder for progressive organizations to pursue their important goals, a trap that has led us to some disastrous public policies that have actually made it harder for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds to uh, get a good education, to learn to read, to learn to do high-level math, to have real opportunities in, in the country. And I think it's a political trap. I think that uh, even though this ideology is opposed to people like Trump on the surface, in practical and political terms, it makes it easier, not harder, for people like him to get elected. Yeah, it does. You know, we've talked in this program about the dangers of progressive groups like the Sierra Club or Planned Parenthood uh, tempering their mission uh, with internal struggles or rules on identity politics uh, and, and, and claims. We've also talked about the notion that a person of, but not of color can't write about matters of racial injustice. I, I gather you think this is a growing trend, it's an insidious one, but um, no one seems to, I mean, all those groups have been written about, but they haven't stopped. Yeah, look, I'm, to give you an example of uh, a transformation that I find really striking, you know, I grew up in, in Europe, I'm Jewish, and, uh, you know, in that time, there was these right-wing groups and a lot of conservatives who worried about how immigration and demographic change were sullying the purity of German culture, right? But, but the purity of our European culture is somehow being adulterated by all these newcomers, and we have to defend it against those influences. Um, I thought that was wrong. Well, today I'm struck by the ways in which um, many of the people in my social world, publishers, uh, museums, uh, Hollywood producers, are worried about what they call cultural appropriation, about the ways in which uh, an American from one group shouldn't uh, be inspired by or shouldn't write characters that come from or shouldn't in certain ways engage with the cultures of other groups of Americans. And I think that this is really an important mistake. The term of cultural appropriation is seemingly attractive because it can be applied to certain cases of real injustices like black musicians uh, not having big careers in the 50s and 60s and white musicians stealing some of their music. But it misdescribes what made those cases wrong and it points us in the right, wrong direction about how to solve them. What was wrong about those cases was that those black musicians couldn't have big careers because of outright discrimination, of their inability to travel across the American South, to perform in many concert venues, to sign with major record labels. And the solution to it would not have been to stop white musicians from being inspired by their music, it would have been, and it was, to allow them to have the big careers that they deserve by overcoming those 
forms of discrimination. So that's what, just one example of these new cultural norms that I think really aren't just going too far in the wrong direction. Sorry, aren't just going too far in the right direction. They're going fundamentally in the wrong direction. They're antithetical to the kind of America that we should seek to create. Yeah, for those black musicians, it was their culture that was being appropriated. Um, and they were the ones, as you say, that was discriminated against. Let me ask you about one, um, uh, about affirmative action. I would argue that in the main, affirmative action has worked. There have been some excesses, but it's created more diversity in education, business, perhaps most striking, the military. I know in journalism, a more diverse newsroom usually is a better newsroom. So so did it go too far or did a right-wing Supreme Court go too far in ending it, at least for higher education? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that a lot of the time in America, we talk too much about uh, moral questions in constitutional terms, right? Whether or not you you are or you should be in favor of a death penalty shouldn't turn on whether or not it constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. I just think that's too narrow a way of thinking about that more important, broader moral question. I think in this case, the basic Supreme Court jurisprudence on which Ruth Bader Ginsburg and people like Antonin Scalia have agreed for decades is actually right, which is that the 14th Amendment should make us very skeptical about any uh, use, particularly by the state, of race as the determinant of how you're going to be treated. That there can be certain compelling state interests which provide an exception to that. But in those cases the programs that use race have to be narrowly tailored. They have to be the best and most direct way to serve that purpose. And there has to be strict scrutiny from courts to make sure that these programs don't become loathsome, that they don't go wrong. And I think uh, it's a hard question about which particular programs uh, lived up to that and which didn't. As somebody who did his PhD at Harvard, I do think there's strong evidence but Harvard discriminated against Asian Americans, often on behalf of whites, in ways that were unacceptable. If you have Asian American applicants achieve the same extracurricular results in high school, be as likely to be on sports teams and as likely to be presidents of their high school clubs. If you have Asian American applicants get the same grades from alumni interviewers as non-Asian American applicants, but some admissions officer who has never seen them in person decides that their personality on a scale of one to five is standards of deviation lower than that of other applicants. Uh, I think that there's clear forms of discrimination and racism at play. Um, and so uh, I think you can be uh, sympathetic to the uh, goals of affirmative action and in particular of remedying the exclusion of African-Americans from the upper echelons of our society for centuries while having concerns about the particular kinds of ways in which institutions like Harvard ran those schemes, often uh, uh, at the cost of other non-white Americans like Asian Americans. Well, in that context, and I'll turn it over to James, what's your view of preferences given to people for athletic performance or, or preference given for legacy uh, uh, admissions? So I'm not a burn the system down kind of a guy. Uh, when it comes to the American admission system, I have to say that I'm kind of a burn the system down kind of a guy. It is completely anomalous in international context. You know, today you get an uh, advantage if you're an athlete, you get an advantage if you're going to play the second violin in the university orchestra, you're at an advantage if your parents went to the university, you're at an advantage if you're the kids of a professor like me 
you get an advantage, by the way, if you're a boy rather than a girl, because uh, women are outperforming yeah. men in high schools and they must have a 50-50 gender ratio. And the whole thing is baroque and absurd. And I kind of think we should scrap it and start from scratch to build a new system that works better. James Carville. Uh, thank you, Rob. The uh, cultural appropriation, I'm glad you hit on that because I really kind of enjoyed that chapter of your book. And it, it's, a, it's a late life term to me. And I remember every Christmas night at Mr. Wong's restaurant and Chinese restaurant in Baton Rouge, every Jew in Baton Rouge was there eating Christmas night dinner. I don't think Mr. Wong thought his culture was being appropriated. <laughs> he was quite delighted to, to serve people. But one, one thing I love is a, is a bagel shop. I hope I'm allowed to advertise right. on your program called Absolute Bagels on the okay, Upper West sure. Side of New York, which is run by Jewish immigrants. And then those Jewish immigrants... Um, had kids that went off to graduate school and thought they wanted to do something else and run a bagel shop. And it was taken over by the Thai employees of this original couple who now for many decades have run this wonderful bagel shop, perhaps the best place to get bagels in New York. Uh, so, you know, that's a way in which my culture has been appropriated, I suppose. I'm Jewish in a way right. that I find joyful and wonderful. Right. Thank you for that example. <laughs> the, the, some of the cultural appropriation is not joyful and wonderful. Uh, the British Museum comes to mind. It, it seems like the Vatican Museum. The museum is full of, you know, progressive liberal uh, identity people, but they're probably the greatest transgressors of cultural appropriation as any other people, any other institutions in the world. Yeah, and, 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 and look, my contention about the term of cultural appropriation is that it can't actually identify what is wrong with particular cases or how to overcome them. Um, so in the case of the British Museum, you can express what's wrong with that case in very straightforward terms. The British Empire colonized countries around yeah. the world and looted and stole their uh, most valuable artifacts. Right. Um, and of course, there's a strong moral case that those artifacts should be given back. You don't right. need to talk about cultural appropriation right. to explain that, right? Right. The, the problem is not somebody going to New Orleans and you get a, I, I, I got bourbon face on shit street sweatshirt. <laughs> okay, I don't care. That's great. Go, you know, appropriate my culture all you want to. Eat crawfish till you drop. You're not a, offended me. So before I turn it over to Al, I'm going to make a general statement, but I think we're going to do it. We are all some different backgrounds, different countries, but we're all loosely believe in pluralism. That is that people should live in a society, could maintain their own identity, but be accepted by people across society. I, I don't think we're winning right now. I think we're losing ground. I, I, I think this is just something that we took reflexively, that just everybody thought the same thing. And I think that the anti-pluralistic forces are, and now you see the left starting to join them. I mean, you see people say, well, integration didn't work. But literally, that's what, that's what the, a lot of the cultural left is saying, am I right? Yeah, one of the things I'm struck by is the discourse on things like immigration, right? And, and I'm talking not about the genuine you know, question about what to do about the border and so on, but immigration more broadly. Um, uh, you know, and the right has started to claim often that uh, integration is not working, that perhaps there's something culturally, or in some cases people on the right even say something uh, genetically inferior about the kinds of immigrants who are coming to the country today, and that's why we're not succeeding. And then the left it has a different story about why it's not working. 
which is that our country is so fundamentally racist and discriminatory that people uh, who are coming to us from non-white countries can't succeed. The best studies we have of this are by economists at Princeton and Stanford and elsewhere with over a million data points, paints a much more optimistic picture. Um, it takes a while to rise socioeconomically. Um, if you don't have much of an education, if you immigrate to a new country and you're an adult and you might never fully learn the language, you're not going to make the median income. But your kids are going to do better than you and your grandkids are going to do better than you. And actually the speed at which people today are making socioeconomic progress from El Salvador or from Vietnam or from Nigeria is about the same as the speed with which Italian Americans and Irish Americans made socioeconomic progress 100 years ago. And so the pessimism on both sides of the political spectrum, one I think a little bit better grounded than the other, there's genuine discrimination, but they're both actually wrong. So I think here that is sort of a weird moment where a lot of our social reality is getting a little bit better, but uh, we have a lot of people giving up hope on that process. And that's a dangerous mistake that's going to make it harder to sustain these tolerant democracies. Let's talk about speech, because that's at the center of some of this, uh, Yasha. I am close to an absolutist. Anything that doesn't engender violence should be exposed to the marketplace of ideas. What happened in Stanford Law School was absolutely terrible, unacceptable. Yet, as I understand it, the American Civil Liberties Union, a group that I have long admired, I might even in my youth once contributed to them, that they now factor in political or ideological concerns concerns on whom and what to defend. Yeah, so for me, the proudest moment in the ACLU's history is when they defended the Nazi parties, uh, uh, the rights of a neo-Nazi party uh, to uh, march through Skokie, Skokie um, Illinois, a town in Illinois. With all those Holocaust survivors. Holocaust survivors. Yeah. Now, I don't think that's the proudest moment in ACLU history because I admire the neo-Nazi party. Um, and I certainly understand uh, uh, coming from uh, a family of Holocaust survivors myself, the pain that that caused in the community there. But as the Jewish lead plaintiff of that case said at the time, if I don't defy, defend the right of these loathsome people to have political speech, somebody's going to turn around and take away yep. the political speech that I believe in. Yep. Right? Um, and I'm struck by the ways in which America has become more afraid to speak its mind. When I came to this country 15 years ago for graduate school, I loved people with so many different political opinions being able to argue about the world and then go have a beer with each other. And today, and I'm sure both of you have had that experience, you, you have coffee or lunch with, with somebody, you know, working a normal uh, white-collar job or with a CEO or with a United States senator or with a famous media figure and they say the kinds of things we've been saying in this conversation and then add, but of course I would never say this right. publicly. I think that's it a happens. problem for trust in our institutions. Mm -hmm. Why should people trust the Democratic Party? Why should people trust the CDC? Why should they trust these institutions when they rightly suspect that what people say to each other is different from what we're willing to say publicly? And that crisis of trust in our institutions is a genuine problem. And so I make a case for the culture of free speech in my book, um, and the main argument I make is that we've sometimes defended free speech in the wrong way. We tended to talk about the great things that will come from free speech, and there's beautiful arguments for that made by John Stuart Mill and On Liberty, and I recommend everybody read the book, and I think he's right. But that can feel a little bit abstract. You know, there's the 
threat from Trump, which is a real threat. There's these people saying awful things in our politics. And you're talking about the beautiful things we're going to get from free speech. Are they that important? So I think the best argument for free speech is not about the good things that come from it. It's about the terrible things that don't come from it, that come from when you don't have it, right? And what is the most important of those? What makes you think that the right people are going to be in charge? Why do you think that the powerful, and by definition, the censors are going to be the powerful, are going to be on the side of the, the just and the righteous? I think this is a deeply naive assumption. Yasha, tell us, on since you have written about the excesses of both so brilliantly, what is what do you view as the greater threat to speech? The threat from the left shouting down speakers or the threat from the right with state laws restricting what can be taught or read? I think the different kinds of threat. Um, I uh, strenuously oppose the kind of laws that uh, Ron DeSantis have, has uh, championed in Florida and that many other Republican states are adopting uh, as well. Um, you know, I teach some of these subjects we've been talking about to college students. Um, I have a week about free speech in one of the seminars I teach. I have a week about cultural appropriation. And the students know what side of the argument I'm on. But I also encourage them to think for themselves. I tell them I'd rather they make a smart argument for a different position than the one I believe in than just parrot my words back to me. And so I obviously also assign texts that would be considered uh, critical race theory, would be considered a form of identity politics. I would not be allowed to teach that course at a public university in Florida because of the kind of illiberal laws that people like DeSantis has passed. That I think is absurd and it's an outrage. Now, they are trying to reshape the culture through that kind of legislation. At the same time, if you are part of a more left-leaning institution or a mainstream institution that effectively veers towards the left, uh, then you're going to be subject to very different kinds of pressures. And so I don't think this is a horse race, right? If you are at the Heritage Foundation, you have a form of right-wing cancel culture, which means you can't criticize Donald Trump. But if you are at many other think tanks, at a university and so on, for a long time, you could not criticize somebody like Ibram X. Kendi or Robin D'Angelo, and that's damaging in its own form. Now, more broadly, I'm more worried about far-right populists winning power and destroying our democratic institutions than I am about uh, people who believe in these ideas getting close to political power. I still don't think that they actually are likely to uh, really win political power. But what I am very worried about is that the way they repel voters and the way they explain why most Americans, I disagree with that judgment, but most Americans now are more likely to say that the Democratic Party is too extreme than that the Republican Party is too extreme, they're effectively in a coalition with people like Trump. They're going to help get him elected. And that is a very deep danger as well. Since you've written about it, so just define for us what in, in the American context is Republican right-wing populism. It's not economic, really. Well, I mean, what is it? So I think the nature of populism is less about whether you are on the left or the right. It's less about what your economic policy is. It's not even particularly about your attitude to uh, what certain forms of minority rights for far-right populists often are uh, uh, discriminatory. Um, it is really a conception of democracy and of the people. It is to say, I and I alone truly represent the people. And anybody who disagrees with me is by virtue of that fact illegitimate. 
if you are in favor of the opposition, you're not just wrong about politics. You're not just going to lead to policies that I think are worse. You're a traitor. You're not truly American. And it sounds like I'm talking about Donald Trump, but if I substitute the word American with the word Indian, then Indians would think I'm talking about Modi. Yeah. And if I substitute it with the word uh, Venezuelan, they would think about people like Hugo Chavez. And if I substitute the word Turkish, they would think about Brexit Erdogan. So politicians that don't share an ideology, but are not always on the same side of the political spectrum, that have different religious backgrounds, different races, use that same kind of rhetoric. And that, I think, is the true definition of, of, of what that form of populist is and, and, and why it's dangerous. And that's different from the particular use of the word populist to refer to the populist party in the late 19th century. We have one term for two different phenomena, and that's confusing and a little vexing. But, but what I'm talking about is, is, is people like Erdogan and Modi and Trump and Chavez, um, uh, you know, not this particular political party that, that was influential in America in the late 19th century or the politicians today that claim some amount of allegiance to it. James? So, <clears throat> I had a, 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 friend, a woman that worked for me back in the 90s, and she graduated from the top-tier law school, a book, law review, married a very successful uh, eye surgeon was out in California, and they sent they, they sent his children to, a, you know, well, I don't know, $70,000 a year grammar school, if you don't have to have in these areas. And the first day of school, they said, all right, all, all the African-American kids here, the Latinx kids here, the Jewish kids here, and this is not why we sent this. Is, and this is not our values. Why are we doing this? When did that? How did that take over? Things like really elite, expensive private schools. It, it, it's stunning. Yeah. So one of the moments in, in researching this book that was most moving to me is when I spoke to a woman called Kyla Posey, an African American educator in the suburbs of Atlanta who'd asked the principal teaching, you know, her, her seven-year-old daughter, whether she could choose a, a teacher in a classroom for her daughter. So I said, sure, of course, tell me which, which teacher you'd like. Um, and she sent in her request, and then the principal kept punting on it and kept suggesting other teachers. And eventually, uh, Kyla got impatient and said, what's going on here? Why can't I have my choice? And the principal said, well, the, the class you requested, that's not the black class. Now, you think that this is a straightforward story of racial discrimination in the American South as has existed for a long time. But in this particular case, the principal of the school was a black woman, and she was a progressive who thought that uh, we have an obligation, this is a sort of broader educational philosophy that has a lot of influence now, to teach children to think of themselves as racial beings. But even as a black seven-year-old girl, uh, has great friends in her class and feels integrated in it, unless there's sufficient number of other black kids, she's not going to develop the right kind of racial self-conception. And so she needs to be in a class where there's a lot of other uh, black kids. And this is part of a broader trend. We uh, see at many elite private schools around the country, as you were saying, um, that you have teachers coming to third grade classrooms, second grade classrooms, first grade classrooms saying, the black kids go over there, the Latino kids go over there, the Asian kids go over there, the white kids go over there, and then you're taught separately. And one of the things I'm worried about here is for white kids, not because they might be uncomfortable, it's fine to be uncomfortable in your education sometimes, but because everything I know from history and social science teaches me that you know, it's flexible how you identify. But once you say, this is my group, you're going to treat members of that group much better than members of 
other groups. So the goal may be for these white kids to own their European heritage and disclaim their white privilege and make them into anti-racist activists. I think they're much more likely to become racist or white supremacists, especially if we adopt these kind of norms at scale. Now you're asking where are these ideas coming from? You know, uh, one whole part of my book is telling the intellectual history of these ideas, taking them seriously, uh, chronicling the thought of interesting thinkers that have puzzled through some of these things and who I think are wrong, but who are worth understanding. And the key move here is by an uh, Indian literary uh, theorist called Gayatri Spivak, who said, I agree with the critiques of essentialist notions of identity that became popular uh, in postmodernist philosophers like, like, like Michel Foucault. I think that when you say you're homosexual and that explains everything about you, that is too simplifying, but it's too essentialist. But I also want to be able to speak on behalf of what she calls the subaltern in the third world, on behalf of the most marginalized people in the world. And to do that, I need to be able to operate with identity categories. And I need to encourage them to think of themselves as part of an identity group that can rebel against the injustices that they suffer. And so she championed the use of what she calls strategic essentialism, acting for strategic purposes as though this essentialist assumptions about identity we're right. And if you go to a progressive space today, you're going to hear a version of that. You're going to hear people say, um, race is a social construct, doesn't really exist. Broadly speaking, I agree with. And then go on to say, but we need to defer to black voices, right? People of color demand. Black and brown people demand this. Um, so you see this strange slippage from the critique of the essentialist notion to an embrace of essentialism. And Spivak herself became very worried about that and said that her idea just became the excuse, the union ticket for a more vulgar form of essentialism that did a lot of damage. Right. So, Prof, before I let you go, just the smartest observation I've ever heard one human being make was made by Eric Hoffer, who was a longshoreman philosopher from San Francisco back in the 70s and 80s. And he said every movement begins as a cause, morphs into a business, and ends up a racket, all right? So the post-George Floyd racial justice group, which started out as a real sense, a lot of that has ended up a racket. And there's a lesson to learn, to be learned here, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you want to improve the world, you have to think hard about what precisely is wrong with it, how we've been able to make some amount of progress in the past, and therefore what's going to help us to continue to make it better. And if out of good intentions you applaud people who claim to have a solution to everything, but that solution isn't working, or it's actually taking us in the wrong direction, um, then you know, you're purchasing your show of political virtue at the price of real progress for real people. One example of that that's been... Um, in the news recently is Ibram X. Kendi, um, a theorist who uh, is deeply Manichaean, explicitly Manichaean in worldview, who says that uh, any policy, any association, any form of human behavior can be classed in the two terms of racist or anti-racist. So if you have a bowling group, it can't just be not racist. It's either racist or anti-racist. Um, and on the basis of this, he thinks that the United States Constitution is racist, that key elements of our political system are racist. Um, for a while, it was very difficult to criticize him. I know a lot of people 
uh, who uh, uh, had misgivings about his ideas but did not feel that they could voice them publicly. He got tens of millions of dollars in donation to start a, a research center at Boston University. And this research center has effectively produced nothing in the last three and four years. And now he's fired a lot of his staff and is under investigation and there's a whole um, uh, brouhaha about it. What good could have come from those 30 or $40 million? How many genuinely important things could we have accomplished? How much could we have helped uh, criminal defendants get a decent uh, public defender? How many resources could we have put into American schools uh, with that? Right? So I think that there is a real, real cost when you uh, uh, don't push back against ideas. It may genuinely be well-intentioned. I have no reason to think that Ibram X. Kendi is a bad person. Um, but his ideas were never convincing and people did not feel comfortable pushing back against them. And in a very straightforward way, I think that led to a waste of money that could have put, been put to much better uses. Thank you. That, that was exactly the, you know, the, uh, thank you for pointing this out because I think it's very important that people do this. And before I let you go, I'll make one observation. Is and somebody was having a conversation about books in schools, and I saw somebody say, Well, I don't want my children reading about the Holocaust or slavery because it'll make them uncomfortable. And God damn it, it's something to be uncomfortable about. Well, the fuck it. <laughs> you're not, if you're not uncomfortable about the Holocaust or slavery, but. Why hide it from him? <laughs> oh, Jesus, we really did this. Yeah, we really did this. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, this, and, and it's not, and, and my point, what's really important about this, but my point is not to ignore the injustices right, right. that persist, and it certainly was not to ignore the injustices in the past. I mean, one way of framing this whole discussion is that there's a really proud American political tradition that in my mind goes from people like Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln to Martin Luther King Jr. And in some ways, people like Barack Obama. Uh, and they recognized the injustices of their times. Uh, Douglass, when he was invited to hold a speech for the 4th of July, called out the hypocrisy of his fellow citizens, saying, how can you talk about all men being created equal and celebrated with value when a lot of people are in chains as I hold this speech? But he didn't say, let's rip up those institutions. He said, let's live up to them. Um, he called free speech the dread of tyrants, recognizing full well that people were saying terribly racist things in his day, but also recognizing that it's what allowed abolitionists like himself to make a case for a better society. Yasha, and you have you have been a fabulous guest. Anybody out there, you know, I would just say, you know, if you want to look at a model that comes closest to what you're thinking about, you might look at the U.S. military, which has, I think, hmm. with common sense, aggressive, uh, affirmative action, they have a very diverse force and nobody says we want to have all blacks in this foxhole and let's put Latinx in this foxhole. Uh, so that, that, that works better than a lot of other institutions. But boy, everybody out there, you ought to get the identity trap. Uh, it is thoughtful. It is provocative. And uh, it, it, is, it is just a great read. Yasha, thank you so much for being with us. Th thank you very much, Sarah. I hope that I'll pass cross again in the future. Right. I, really I hope so. This, this has been an honor. So uh, anytime. Okay, absolutely. Thank you. Thank Watch you so it. Much, we'll take Rob. you up on that. Please. <laughs>
All right, now for the outrage of the week. You know, a political party, if it's serious, you know, wants to have numerous candidates, not just the top, but up and down the ballot. Nationally, the Libertarians Party, the Green Party, the old Communist Party tried to do that, but not no labels. Thanks to our colleague, Josh Legum, um, who has reported that to be on the ballot in Arizona, it, candidates must file as a political party if they have multi-candidates. And no labels has gained the necessary ballot signatures. Two candidates have filed to run for lower offices on no labels line. Rather than welcoming these converts, no labels has demanded the Secretary of State exclude these candidates from the ballot. Why? If they're on the ballot, down ballot, no labels falls under the Arizona elections law and must reveal its donors, which this secretive group refuses to do. That's right, James. I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but those champions of reform and, 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 and open choices is hiding its fat cat contributors. Any reasonable explanation until they release those donors, you have to question and think maybe it's sleazy. There, there, there has to be something bad and they, or some promises they've made. The integrity of no labels and leaders like Ben Chavez, a former civil rights leader and former senator and vice presidential candidate, Joe Lieberman is on the line. Release those contributors, no labels, now. And so this is not a outrage. I'm just make a, a statement to buttress your point. In Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona, it, Trump got a higher percent of the vote in 2020 than he did 2016. Let me repeat that. In Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona, in each of those four states, Trump's 2020% was higher than his 2016%. So I, I, if, if you aren't talking to how destructive third parties are, that'll give you a, a, a really good example. For, for my outrage, I think it's, to me, it's outrage of, in maybe the history of American politics, of, of, of somebody saying something. And that is when, you know, General Kelly told Jeffrey Goldberg, who printed it in September of 2020, uh, Trump saying that he don't understand why soldiers would die for the country or why they would do this or why they'd be wounded and they're losers and fools. And everybody knew it was General Kelly that told that to Jeffrey Goldberg, but it, the story appeared, it caused some talk, and it just went away. It's in the ether. I, I, I ask knowledgeable people about it, and they'll say, yeah, you know, I remember something about that. And it so happens that General Kelly gave a statement under his own name to Jay Talpa confirming each and every one of these things and what Trump said. As we are speaking right now, this, this is podcast is taped on Thursday, I think we put it Taped on Wednesday, we put it up on Thursday morning. Come on Thursday morning. We are working, my, my friends at American Bridge, we're working on a spot with an AI Trump voice uttering these words over patriotic images. I mean, you, yeah, how in, in everything that you ever grew up with, everything that you ever knew, everything that people told you, it's like, well, the people in Normandy, the crosses and the... Crescents and the Star Davids and Arlington, of which, you know, you live in Washington. I lived there for forever and a day. How many times we see Arlington Cemetery? Literally every day. I mean, every image, a band of brothers, Sansa Iwo Jima, they, you, you name it. The Sergeant York, 
whatever. In, in you know, if people don't care, I guess I can't do anything about it. But God damn it, I'm gonna spend a lot of time trying to get them to know that this happened and what this guy and said. Jan and I want them to ask every goddamn Republican congressman, senator, governor, candidate, state house, everything. Do you agree with this and will you tolerate and this? And what would you think, Period. James, if Trump sued you on that? Uh, please. Oh, in the name of... I, I, please do that. Please do that. Because there's nothing more we'd love to have as a hearing. And we'd love to put General Kelly, uh, USMC four-star... Uh, general, retired, longest serving chief of staff in the Trump administration. And so, General Kelly, you actually heard these words. Did you tell anybody else about this? Well, oh, you told Jeffrey Goldberg. Did you mention it to some of the other friends? Yeah, well, yeah, I actually did. Talk, talk to Admiral so General so. Mattis knew about to. it. Yeah, General Mattis knew about it. All right. They, I, it, it, I, and, I, and I can't tell you how much money... I've raised a lot of money for a lot of different candidates and groups and shit like that. The easiest money I would ever raise would be for the legal defense fund of the AI-generated Trump voice. <laughs> I, I'd be like that guy, be you, man. I'd have me $55 million. <laughs> man, I'll tell you something. I hope you put your name on it because I love Trump v. Carville. I mean, man, no, I, 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 I'm going to be selling tickets for it, and I know who's going to win. <laughs> right. And I, well, we want appeals. We want everything, man. We want motions. <laughs> Keep that baby going. All right. Keep it going. Absolutely. He let me tell you something. He is going to say nothing. He will say absolutely nothing. That the, the the conservatives that they they and and I hope and we're given a spot where you have to, to you have to pay us something some kind of campaign finance law but it's highly discounted and if there is such a thing as the DNC and I'm assured by people that they actually are you is sure? yeah I, I, again I'm told kind of reliably that it does exist I would take this spot I would spend fifty million dollars and I would run it on nothing but Fox and football. That's it. Fox and football. And you would see that. And, and you know, you want to stick with Trump? Fine. We're going to make you freaking. Okay. Pay. I'm going to commit to go to video if we get that because we want to show it on this program and just the audio isn't going to be enough. <laughs> Now for our questions, our listener questions, uh, which we have a lot this week, with Jeff in St. Pete, Florida, who wants to ask you, James, if anyone thinks Biden's going to be reelected re with his smash and grab spree going on, I have a bridge to sell. Why isn't he getting tougher on crime? Uh, I, you know, I don't know why did it never put Kamala Harris out front and center on crime issue. I don't know why she's not meeting with... You know, people in Philadelphia that are victims of smash and grab. I, I, I don't, I, I don't understand their their, their thinking. Okay, I, I, but in the administration, should you know, Biden had a great record on this. It, it, you know, the, the '94 crime bill is one of the most successful pieces of legislation ever passed, and it seems like they. I, I don't know. I, I don't know why they seem so paralyzed on this issue, or why they seem so paralyzed on the border. I, I in you know on the, in terms of the border, a friend of mine coming to her, President Clinton was on a talk, gave a talk, and he said, I'll, I'll, I think it's our policy is screwy. So these migrants come, for, I mean, people I love migrant people, don't get me wrong, and we can give them housing, but we don't let them work. Well, that's stupid. If if people are here and they're waiting, let them work. 
Let, let them earn paying the Social Security and Medicare. The, the people are looking for employees, but I, 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 I do think there's some real reason that we have to look at our at our immigration policies, employment, how we enforce it, asylum. It, it's something, at least, it's clearly true in in arguably that the American people think the system is broken, and I, I, I'm not sure I don't well, agree with yeah. that. Well, yeah, and on crime, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting. Actually, violent crime is down. In most Damn. major cities, Washington, D.C. Is, is a notable yeah. exception, uh, but people don't think that. You can say that all you want to, but I'm sorry. You have to You have to address it. I think Merrick Garland is a very good attorney general. This is not his forte. This is not – Merrick Garland's not going to be the tough cop, and, and I, well, it should have been Harris, but if it's not, it's got to be someone because there has to be a sense that they realize that uh, whatever the data shows, people think things are bad. Well, there's about 334 million people in the United States. Of of that, I don't know, uh, 100,000 are going to commit 80% of the crimes. And what's happened in, in New Orleans, for instance, the, the carjacking rate is way down last year. They caught somebody and put them in jail, okay? They, if there's 100 carjackings in the city of New Orleans, there's seven people at that 80 of them. All right. And I'm sorry, but we got to ask the question here at some juncture, does warehousing work? Well, we do. And uh, the problem in Washington is not only is crime up, but there was a carjacking the other day. It was a congressman. That's 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 headlines all over the country. So, you know, you got to You got to address that issue. And the data would tell us that that that's the, the, the 30th car that God tried to yeah. jack. Dave crossed the country to Seattle, Washington. Ask how can President Biden and Democrats counter the likely asymmetric politics heading into next year? Trump and MAGA Republicans are playing world wrestling rules, and Democrats continue playing white glove Queensberry rules. Have we learned nothing since 2016? Dave, ask you, James. Well, first of all, it's the nation being a Democrat and Republican, all right? They lie about everything, and their voters like to be lied to. The problem with it, with you, my friend out in, in uh, soon Kings County, uh, you don't like being lied to. It's, it's not the way that it's not your moral composition. And what they will tell you, and and it's remarkable the number of people that will tell you this. And it, it's is look, we're not going to win elections very much in the future because frankly our coalition and you see this new research. We, God, what well, I don't want to try to get this guy Angus Deaton and his wife, Miss. Professor Case, who who just came out with this. I'm going off a tangent a little bit, but it's that important. The life expectancy between the college grads and non-college grads is now eight and a half years. They're, they're literally dying off. All right? And, you know, and they feel like if they don't gerrymander everything and control every level of power there is and keep it at all costs, that they're going to lose the, the country. When they talk about country, they're talking about white people ruling the country. And, and everything they do is justified. That's what they say. That's what you're up against. So they'll gerrymander anything. And the people in Wisconsin, the people in Texas, the people in Georgia will, will look you right now and say, that's exactly what we're doing. You'd be surprised how many will say that. If we let everybody vote, we'd lose every election. Trump said that. Then uh, who, one of the 
voter suppression activists said in Minnesota they just roll out. I mean in Wisconsin they just roll out of bed and go vote. Cleta Mitchell. Well, that's what you're supposed to do is roll out of bed and go that fucking was, vote. Cleta Mitchell. <laughs> Cleta Mitchell. Yeah. Okay. Look at these people just get up in the morning and they go vote. Well, what do you expect them to do? Go get Bull Connor to hose them and beat them and they get the vote. Uh, it's just so, but they're very upfront about what they're trying to do. They're, they're not being duplicitous. They're saying if we don't rig this system in our favor, we're going to lose elections. John, all right. Our, our next question is from Somerset, California. John, who said that he has read that if Trump or Biden is not the, uh, he's read that if Trump or Biden are not the nominees, the freshest face wins. I have real concerns, John says, that a Nikki Haley versus Biden ticket would not end well for the Democrats. Oh, John, have you ever understated that case? If Nikki Haley is good enough to win the Republican nomination, that is a huge if. I'm afraid that she would beat Trump like a drum in a general election. I hate to think of that. I, <clears throat> she wouldn't be a Trump, but she certainly wouldn't be my cup of tea as president. But Joe Biden with a 30-year age difference, wow. So this is the problem that I have on state very succinctly. The White House tells us that we should operate under the doctrine of strategic certainty, okay? It's inevitable, and, and boy, you see this with your friends in the press too. It, it, I see a lot of this in my friends in Democratic Consulting. It's inevitable. There's going to be Trump. It's going to be Biden. There's nothing that you can do about it, all right? And when the choice is boiled down, to Trump and Biden, people are going to continue to find Trump too repulsive, uh, uh, too dangerous, and they're going to come to realize all of the good things that Biden has done, and we're going to win this Trump-Biden matchup. So that assumes that we already know what's going to happen on the Republican side. I, I, I think you would say Trump is the probable nominee, but I wouldn't make, I wouldn't make a strategic assumption on this at all. Then you say it's going to be Trump and Biden's going to be the choice. It doesn't look like that's going to be the case. It looks like no labels is going to be a, a, be very much a president this election. Cornell West shows no signs, zero signs of backing off. Bobby Kennedy's even talking about running as a, I don't know, Green Party Libertarian or something else. So I don't, I, I can't buy into the strategic certainty that this is going to be a head-to-head -head Trump matchup. Because if I, as I said earlier in the show, and I'll say it again, Trump did got a higher percent of the vote in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Arizona in 2020 than he did in 2016. And that's all attributable to the third-party vote. So I can't, I just can't go along with the doctrine of strategic certainty. Yeah, no, um, you know, I totally agree um, uh, <clears throat> on that. Uh, James, Michael in Wixom, Michigan, I guess it is. Uh, or maybe it's Wixom, Mississippi. What's MI? That's Michigan, I think. Mississippi. Yeah, that's what I think. But So I think it's 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 all the M's of Missouri, Michigan, Yeah, there are a lot of M's around there. Why doesn't Biden, Michael, from wherever he's from, the great town of Wixom, wants to know, why doesn't Biden try to connect more with blue-collar workers? Where's the trucker day or the UAW day at the White House? Was joining the picket line a good start? Well, first of all, I thank you for your observation. I... I'm going to take a little issue with it. I, I think the, the President Biden of any national Democrat 
tries to identify more with blue collar people, with people working class roots, with union people. I, I, he, the last thing in the world that Biden comes across as is a kind of coastal, uh, triumphal person or, or, or anything like that. I mean, totally. I think if, if anything, he goes out. Well, I, I don't think that guy, if you tried to explain to him what woke was, he would, couldn't, what are you talking about? He have no idea. But, but it, we do suffer from a, a, a drag of, as we talked about with our friend, a potential congressman from Colorado. It, it's a good observation, but I, I, I don't, Biden to me, oh, and, and the other person that does not come across like this is Bernie Sanders. He hasn't come across as, a, as an arrogant or, or thinks he's better. I think he comes across kind of left winger, but whatever. But he doesn't come across that he thinks more of himself than he thinks of the voters. He really doesn't. And neither does Biden. Yeah. No, I totally agree. <clears throat> John in Sonoma, California. John's a, a longtime listener and asks great questions for many weeks. You're right. Well, for <clears throat> Sonoma, I'll come out there and see you, dude. That's John nice. wants to know what we think of Newsom's Senate appointment having skipped over Barbara Lee. I, I think it was a excellent appointment. I don't know the woman, but she's clearly qualified. He pledged to uh, appoint a black woman uh, to take the place of, uh, of the late Diane Feinstein, who we ought to say deserves all of the kudos she's getting. She had an extraordinary career in the United States Senate, which uh, should not be hidden by the difficult and sad last year or so. I don't know this woman. Um, I think it's she's president of Emily's List, a former labor leader. He's getting some criticism because he refused to rule out uh, whether she should, you know, run again for the Senate. That's not his decision. That's her decision. She'll decide. My guess is she won't. It's pretty hard to get in at this stage uh, and get a whole team together and everything. And there's a bunch of strong candidates, I think, led by Adam Schiff. Barbara Lee was going to finish the distant third. Uh, she may be the one Democrat who couldn't have won an election. So I think it was a smart move by uh, by Newsom. So I... I, I I, I know very, very slightly, but people that I do know unanimously think very highly of her. So I, I, that, that's always a good sign that people that know someone well uh, think a lot of them. I thought that at one point we were saying whoever he appointed would agree not to run uh, for re-election, but apparently that has changed. What's what's the history of that? No, now, I think I, you know. I think you're right. I think he indicated that. He indicated that in interviews. He was first interviewed by someone on MSNBC who said, "Will you pledge to appoint a black woman?" Uh, to, since Kamala Harris has left, and I think he was caught a little bit off guard uh, and said yes. And then there was another one on. You know, he, I, I think he was trying to get out of appointing Barbara Lee. Uh, so he suggested that, um, uh, you know, I'm going to point someone who's not going to run. Again, that's not his decision. Uh, I guess he could have gotten a pledge from someone ahead of time. But I, I'm um, at this stage, I would just say uh, there's another good United States senator. And let's celebrate that. And let's celebrate the great legacy of Dianne Feinstein. Yeah. I, I, I said say about uh, Congressman Barbara Lee. I mean, she's clearly to the left the way I would be. She's a very nice and charming person. Yeah. She's a very affable. Um, she 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 doesn't come across as a kind of Berkeley, you know, uber left wing know it all. Although her record is, you know, clearly left of most anybody. But personally, I I, I find her to be a very engaging person. James, this is the last question. This is good. This is a, this is a similar question from Rabbi John in Los Angeles. All right, <clears throat> all right, Rabbi uh, and Kenneth in Houston. I, I guess they both 
both their wives think this because the question is, my wife is certain that you have publicly raised Joe Biden's age as an issue so often to get it out of the way so that we Democrats can come together and fully support the Biden-Harris ticket. She thinks you are sly and clever and you've pulled off this great trick, James. <laughs> Thank Take you it. for the compliment. But <laughs> Take it. It's not, you know, it, it, tell people, it doesn't matter if I think that Biden is too old or not. Who really gives a shit? Number one, vote. Don't even live in a. Don't even vote in a swing state. But what I can tell the the, the rabbi and his wife and his friends and each and every one of them, the American public thinks this is a big issue, <laughs> and it's not. They're not likely to change their mind. That that's for the point. I'm. And I don't have a, a overly clever strategy behind this, but all I can say publicly, I read these polls. And they're all, they're unanimous and they're unanimously bad. And I'm sorry, it, it, it can't be denied. And if you don't, in politics, like any other endeavor in life, if you're not honest with yourself, and it's going to cause great harm. And so I may, being 79 this month, I'm all four guys going to be, you know, in his 80s in president, but I, I don't think people think that a lot of people have questions about that. And I think they're legitimate oh, questions. Oh, man, I was going to, I was hope the rabbi was right and you were pulling off this great Machiavellian move. Yeah, I I, I, thank you, rabbi. <laughs> it was a great, you know, move. Maybe they should, you know, but let's it, see what it, happens. It, it, all I was doing was just telling all people right. what time. For those it was. of you who didn't get your questions read or answered today, please keep them coming because we love them. It's just hard to pick. Uh, it's hard to pick as you know those that we do read, but we will get to it next week. We hope so. Please keep them coming. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our recent sponsors in our show notes. We thank you for supporting it because when you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also find other shows you might enjoy on the Politicon YouTube channel or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. And remember, please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.